Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, May 2nd, which means it's Media Monday. On today's episode, I talk to my boss, John Kelly, about whether streaming, the hottest thing going in the content wars, is already facing a backlash. And we'll chat about the incoming leaders of CNN and the New York Times and whether they can get their reporters to actually care less about Twitter. Good luck with that. And later on, Dylan Byers stops by to talk about Saturday's White House Correspondents' Dinner in Washington. Dylan was in the District of Disaster over the weekend, went to all the parties, and he'll give us the download of all the newest media gossip in our nation's capital. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Media Monday, everybody. And John, how are you doing, man? I'm good, Peter. And I'm not here for long. Before you know it, I'll be flying out today and we're going to have dinner tonight <laughs> in Hollywood. So I can't wait to see you. Uh, you're going to be the <laughs> coolest guy at the Roosevelt Hotel. <laughs> Uh, John, we are currently in earnings season uh, in which all of the big companies and a lot of the the media companies and tech platforms we cover announced all the details from their businesses on on conference calls with investors and reporters. My favorite thing that happens during earnings season is like, you know, a company will miss expectations, quote unquote, by like a fraction of a percent. And then they're like stock will plummet. (laughs) But on that topic... One of the biggest earnings calls was Netflix, which announced that they lost 200,000 subscribers in their in their most recent quarter. Their stock took a huge hit from there. This also comes amid CNN Plus folding. What do you think the Netflix earnings call uh, says about the streaming universe? And what are other companies saying about it? Well, we're definitely having like... Uh 
a reaction to the reaction now. You know, Netflix announced that they lost subscribers, like you said, and they projected to lose more, which is a, a first in the company's history and, and obscures the fact that they had revenues of, of almost $8 billion, which is grew, I think, 10% year over year, but I guess it, it missed the projection. But now we're seeing a full-on sort of Freud era in, in media. And, and I don't know if we'll look back at this as like, you know, a kind of late COVID hysteria as media continues its evolution. But Spotify announced their earnings this week and their subscriber growth has slowed significantly. That stock is down. Uh, Facebook announced that their revenue growth had totally missed projections, but their stock is up 20%. So I I have no idea what's going on here. Comcast, which obviously is the parent company of NBCU, announced that Peacock grew from, I think, 9 million subscribers to 13 million which is growth of, you know, 35%. And Jeff Schell, who's the CEO of NBCU, declared to the market basically like, this is the kind of product we wanted, i.e. we didn't want to be Netflix. And you heard the similar thing from David Zaslav at the Warner Brothers Discovery earnings call when he said, we don't want to overinvest in content. So there is like this collective gasp from media people, particularly entertainment media people, it's it's an overdue. I told you so. It's it's like a, a mighty revenge fantasy being acted out here. <laughs> it does seem kind of wild to me that Netflix has lost seventy percent of its value a, a year. That that does seem like it's this is not investment advice, but you know, but like that that does seem like an overreaction. But it does seem like we have all collectively lost our minds in this industry, <laughs> and there's going to be a leveling out point some at some time in the next three or six months. Yeah, there's like a feeling among quote unquote, like old media executives that they are like pointing at, at the Netflix quote unquote collapse and, and like the CNN plus thing and being like, well, you know, <laughs> maybe streaming isn't the thing. Maybe we're, it's like, shut up. Um, but. Oh, totally. Totally. These are all very different companies. They have different, at least in the tech side, different products, different user bases, frankly, different business models. But I mean, I feel like one of the things we've been talking about a lot with Netflix lately is one of the reasons they might be taking a hit is their content library isn't as compelling as HBO or Disney+. Plus. So it's like, why are you saying that Netflix is the feature of streaming in this case when we've also simultaneously been talking about how they have different content that is perhaps leading people to you know, abandon the platform, even though I don't think that's actually happening. <laughs> well, one of the reasons you and I both love this business is that for all its fundamental pinnings to earnings and balance sheets, media is an industry that follows narratives. And there is just this collective, as you put it, I told you so moment now, where a lot of like genuinely disgruntled executives, they're having this epiphany. And it's funny, it reminds me a lot of what happened in Web 2.0, when the Comcast of the world invested eight, nine-figure sums in the likes of Vice and BuzzFeed. And I think in many cases, and I've talked to some of these people who, who, who said as much, they had no earthly idea why they were doing it other than that they kept being told this is the next big thing. This is the next big <laughs> yeah. thing. Like, this, this thing is great. You don't understand. These millennial kids, they love this. these stupid cat videos. It's so sticky. It scales all this stuff. It, it, it was nuts. We, you know, we, we saw this in the sidelines. And the moment that it all changed, Vice 
started its own network in a, a play of like just total chutzpah and short-sightedness. They took over like H2 or something on the on the A&E programming slate. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that these old media guys knew were ratings. So when they saw the overnights and they were like, oh, it's 0.0. No one's watching this shit. They knew they'd been handed uh, a, a bag of donuts. And so I think that there's something that's <laughs> happening here too with entertainment streaming where there are a ton of old school entertainment executives who say, yeah, we get it. The Crown is great. We even watch Tiger King, but like the rest of this stuff, it's garbage. And for years they've been told in, in you know, in, in reciprocity, oh no, it's, it's only garbage to you, but there are a lot of people out there in Kansas who are watching it. And now I think <laughs> the knives are out and sharpened because they feel like, yes, you know what? Our core competency is making good stuff. And there's not enough good stuff on Netflix. And so there is this just, I mean, it's a totally out of body, out of mind experience that we're, we're feeling here. And I think the public markets are, are kind of feeling it too. I took a lap around basic cable last night. The, sh- <laughs> the shit on basic cable also sucks. You know, it's yeah. not like they have the keys to the realm there. Um, anyway, uh, I'm going to take a quick, quick break, John. We'll be right back. I want to talk to you about uh, twitter.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back, everybody. John, I want to ask you as a media executive um, about something in the water among other media executives, which is the idea that that Twitter is a distortion field for journalists, that it's a distraction from their jobs, that it, you know, you know, brings a lot of prominent news brands into, into disrepute. I bring this up because Chris Licht, who is taking over CNN today, May 2nd, uh, which is also my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, Michael. He, uh, a couple weeks ago, logged off Twitter. He didn't delete his account, but he said this. May 2nd will be my first official day in the office at CNN and my last day on Twitter. Twitter can be a great journalistic tool, but it can also skew what's really important in the world. I'm logging off and looking forward to working with the incredible team at CNN. This echoes something that uh, Dean Bacay, the outgoing New York Times editor, said a few weeks back where he put out a memo to employees that he wants New York Times journalists to just be on Twitter less, that it's a distraction, that there was a period maybe six years ago, almost 10 years ago, where news organizations were like, get on Twitter, get on Twitter. And now, you know, I think rightly so, he believes it's a driver of harassment and abuse, bad tweets, you know, are reputational threat to the Times. It warps and distorts their reporting because they think their audience is either their peers or the very online audience, which often skews left, that a lot of those reporters follow. And that just takes up too much fucking time. Anyway, do you think that there is genuinely a a sea change happening here where editors and journalists will just start to consider Twitter less of a thing in their daily lives? Or is that just fantasy at this point? Well, amen to all of that. I've never been a big Twitter user. I'm not good at it. I don't speak in, in that sort of language. And I think that 
Dean's got a fair point to make, but I actually think that something else is going on here, which is that what we're seeing is a microcosm of the problem that Twitter has itself. I mean, let's not forget Twitter is being purchased by the world's wealthiest man for a number of reasons. You know, as Bill Cohen said last week, it's not a great business. It has a very hard time retaining value. It makes money in the way that other social media companies do largely, which is advertising, but it doesn't offer sort of the, the, the stickiness and the marketplace aspects that make um, Facebook and Google, for instance, so much more valuable. So I think that's actually true on a certain level for the media people and the media companies that use Twitter. For instance, our pal Bill was on a Twitter Spaces with Kara Swisher last week and Casey Newton. It was great. We tuned in. It was awesome. They, they, they cut it for Sway, Kara's show in The Times. No one's actually making any money off of that. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of value that's being created there. And it's being distributed without any sort of fundamental exchange. I, I don't know what Elon Musk's plans are for Twitter, but I think that there was a collective feeling. I definitely feel it. I mean, it was one of the impulses for the thesis behind Puck. Journalists give away way too much value. Yes. And they give away a ton of value on Twitter. And I think you could say that about many other different classes, uh, but it is a media problem at large. And if Dean was able to collectively harness the power of what the elite Times journalists, like you know Maggie and Barbaro and, and uh, you know, people who spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, are, are doing there and just say, okay, we're going to create like actual products for our platform, it'd be a lot more valuable. I'm sure Elon Musk is probably trying to think of uh, a way to keep the conversation happening on Twitter, but it's secreting value. That is the real, real problem. One of my soapbox things too is, is as a political journalist, David Carr, of formerly of the New York Times, told me when I wrote my research study uh, about Twitter back in 2013 at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, he said like, this was my kicker in this piece, which was 95 pages if you want to Google it. Um, <laughs> David Carr of the New York Times said he would enact a curt but elegant Twitter policy if he were running campaign coverage at the New York Times. Quote, tweet less, dear colleagues. (laughs) I unfollowed a lot of political reporters because you are tweeting for your colleagues. You are not tweeting for me. I would say, put the phone in your pocket. Start focusing on the people that are in front of you. Don't worry so much about what the other guys are doing. Be willing to play off the ball. That was 2013. This paper I wrote is full of people in 2013. Everyone from... John Dickerson to Chuck Todd to Maggie Haberman to Mike Murphy saying, here are my ideas about how we can use Twitter better heading into the next election. That would be 2016. Of course, no one enacted any (laughs) restraint. But, you know, it just feels like journalists and political people who produce, I think, according to Pew, like 97% of all tweets. (laughs) Oh my God, is that true? That's that's astonishing. Yeah, no, at some point, like the newsroom's can only do so much. The bosses like Chris Licht and Joe Kahn can only do so much. Like a lot of this just comes down to the ability of individual reporters and political actors to show some restraint, to understand that they're probably addicted in the same way that a, you know, a model is addicted to Instagram or a teenager is addicted to TikTok. It's no more sophisticated on Twitter. It's been so evidently true for like 10 years now that Twitter is not real life. And I was one of the first people to say that. And it's just like only now are executives coming around to that. I'm with you, man. It is not real life. It's bad for business because of the, the, the leakage. Do you have any sort of like um, post-mortem thoughts for, for this era of Twitter? Uh, I assume, assuming we end, we're entering a new one, uh, one way or another, are there any things that like you predicted in that Shorenstein paper in 2013 that you're sort of seeing on the other side of this thing? It's been almost 10 years. The smartest thing that came out of that was Chuck Todd actually said, 
again, this was after 2012, you know, newsrooms were still figuring out social media and like the attention economy and all this stuff. And Chuck Todd said, someone is going to come along in the next election and just be totally open source, pull back the kimono, give reporters so much access that they can't resist. And it will just like swallow all of social media. And like, I forget which names he spouted at the time. It was like, Maybe it'll be Marco Rubio. Carlo Fiorino. You know, this was before Trump came along, but it's just that that specifically came true. And it became true because Chalk and then myself writing this paper just understood the impulses of reporters, which is like, you want access in the social media era. You want attention and retweets. You want to impress your colleagues. And journalism is a what have you done for me lately kind of industry. You know, once you follow your story, you're like on to the next one. And political reporters crave that attention and that dopamine and Twitter is perfect for it. I just think like people have to cop to the fact that a lot of these platforms aren't going to fix themselves. They have public facing algorithms that are designed to reward emotion and it's on the individual to log off. You know, if you're on Twitter on the weekends and like you're posting pictures and like getting in fights with like Matt Iglesias on a fucking weekend (laughs) and you're not hanging out with your like wife and your kids, like that's on you, man. You need to like think about your life. Uh, put the fucking phone down. These are things that can be really rewarding platforms and phones, but they can also be dangerous. And it's on individuals, I think, to do more. Anyway. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> on that note, have a great week. <laughs> Peter, I agree with you completely. That's why I love Media Monday. We just agree with each other for 20 minutes. Um, all right, cool. Uh, I, will, uh, I will see you tonight somewhere in Los Angeles. All right, Peter, looking forward to it. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Dylan Byers on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Um, look, it, it, I love I love this weekend. A lot of people love to criticize this weekend. A lot of people say it's indicative of the sort of incestual nature of, of the swamp and D.C. politics. What I'll say is this. First of all, there's no better time of year to go to D.C. So if you've got to pick one weekend, <laughs> this is the one. And, and two... From a journalist perspective, media reporter certainly, but political reporter, what have you, congressional reporter, this is actually a wonderful thing because for for the span of 48, 72 hours, you're basically just shooting fish in a barrel. You're going from party to party to brunch to brunch to dinner to dinner, seeing everyone who you need to be talking to or almost everyone who you need to be talking to for work. And so to, to sort of parachute in and get the opportunity to see all these folks from CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and also the White House and the Hill is incredibly beneficial. And it's a great time to sort of take the temperature of the town. And and I think the temperature is one that is really sort of, at least from what I could gather, excited to be back. I mean, this was the first time that this dinner had been held where everyone was in the same room. The vast majority of people were not wearing masks. We'll, we'll, We'll take a week or two to see whether or not that was foolish. I went to Tammy Haddad's famous garden brunch on Saturday morning, and even Dr. Fauci was there. So he seemed comfortable enough to show up without a mask. This weekend is all about the sort of marriage between politics and media. And this is a moment in which both of those industries are undergoing a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty. Certainly on the political side, we know the way that the the political landscape has changed and is continuing to change in the various factions. And what I would say is everyone outside of the very Trump wing of the the Republican Party, who is very much 
against what all of this is about was there. And so that sort of like core establishment, Democratic, Republican establishment town was there and, and, and mingling about as they have done for decades. On the media side, look, you, CNN is obviously going through an immense amount of change. It was very interesting to see Chris Licht around town and to see, you know, him sort of coming into this weekend on the cusp of starting, formally starting his new job at CNN, although he's obviously had an impact there already. MSNBC is going through its own drama. They had a lot of parties this weekend. They, there was a lot of sort of, you know, buzz and intrigue around what their future is. You have Ben Smith and Justin Smith getting ready to launch Semaphore later this year. They had a party, not a launch party, but it was definitely one of the most buzzed about events uh, of the weekend. And a lot of people turned out just because I think there's a, an immense amount of curiosity about what this thing is going to be and what it's going to look like. And we're starting to see more of that as I wrote in my piece last week. There's so many journalists really know Ben Smith and know what he's capable of and know how great he is. They know Justin Smith and know what he did at Bloomberg and they know the sort of the extensive Rolodex that he has. And they know now that there's about 25 to $30 million in the bank for this new company. And I think there's a lot of curiosity around what it's going to be and what it's going to look like. And then I think, you know, for the journalists in DC, the most important question is who are they going to hire and, and who is going to be the sort of editorial lead for DC? Because as I wrote last week, this is really going to start as a DC publication. And so the sort of influence that Justin and Ben have in DC off the bat, starting around the, the midterms and, and the beginning of the 2024 campaign, which of course starts right after the midterms. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. And then the, the you know, the, the famous UTA party uh, that sort of everyone comes through and it sort of stretches into the wee hours of the morning. Things tend to get a little sloppy. But good, you know, I mean, I think the main takeaway from all that was just that people are ready to have fun again and people are ready to enjoy themselves. And for all of the criticism that DC gets for being a sort of navel-gazing, ancestral place, it is nice to see this community come together again. It is nice to see those familiar faces and those people come together again and know that the sort of business of DC, which is a business that is based on relationships and, and based on socializing and trading secrets and trading gossip is alive and well. And, and certainly you saw that too at, at Tammy Haddad's brunch. And then I evacuated immediately after that. Um, <laughs> by the time you've done this, the, done that party circuit for, you know, like 48 hours, it's, uh, it's not a bad idea to get out. I watched the Biden speech and the and the Trevor Noah speech on the plane ride home. I think they both did fine. Uh, and then I'm I'm blissfully waking up back in LA on Sunday morning <laughs> rather than racing to DCA to catch a flight home with a hangover. But anyway, all in all, a good weekend. I it's look, it's like Coachella. Some people hate it, but you know what? At the end of the day, it's fun, it's constructive, it's useful. Uh, and it was good to see all those people again. Anyway, so that's my takeaway. Thank you for having me. Look forward to getting back into the grind of the usual media reporting and, and I'll see you guys in a bit. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. 
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 